We started this series last week thinking about what it means for us to be a family who abides in Christ. And uh, JR talked to us a lot about what does it really mean for us to abide in the same way that a branch abides in a vine and draws life from that. So we abide in Christ and that gives life to our family. And he talks about some specific spiritual practices that help us to abide. And uh, if we're abiding in scripture, if we're abiding in prayer, uh, abiding in solitude, some of those practices that we do spiritually help us as a family to grow uh, closer to God and closer to each other. So we're going to continue this series for the whole month. And today we're going to look at a spiritual practice that maybe you haven't heard of as much. And it's the spiritual practice of friendship. What does it look like for us to practice friendship as the family of God? And we're going to use the, the same section of Scripture from John chapter 15 for our passage. So I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 15. We're going to go just a little bit farther down to verse 9. John 15, starting with verse 9. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair you can grab or open it up on your phone. Um, turn to John 15. As I'm reading these words, you can think about what it might be saying to you about the spiritual practice of friendship. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. This week I saw a famous TV personality interviewed, and the topic was about her need for acceptance. And you can imagine some famous person, I'm not going to tell you her name, but just imagine someone who you would look at and think that person would never have a struggle with acceptance. They're just famous, they're popular, everybody knows them. And she told about standing in the lunchroom on her first day of junior high school. And as she stood there, she was facing a sea of people and she felt like every eye was on her. And she wondered, who is going to be my friend? And the second question is, where will I sit? As she walked from one end of the lunchroom to the other, she described how she found no one to sit with. And the farther into the lunchroom she got, the more the panic in her increased until she had to run out of the room. She went to the bathroom and she locked herself in a stall. And she thought, this is what she thought, I'm not good enough. No one will be my friend. Anybody here ever have that thought? I know that I have. And I have one specific case that came right to my mind, third grade gym class. And Rick Schultz was the kind of athletic boy everybody wanted to be, and he had a best friend. And they got to be captains. Back then, I guess, gym teachers didn't know better, so they had captains. And they had to pick 
teams for kickball. And I can remember trying to will Rick Schultz to pick me early. You know, I, you know this was before Star Wars, but I was using the force on him to try to say, <laughs> pick me first, pick me first, pick me first. Well, he picked everybody else, and I got picked last. And I actually remember it this way, that there was some conversation between him and his friend about who was going to have to take me. And they were probably negotiating for some future high draft pick, I know, but, you know. <laughs> my thought in that moment... I'm not good enough, and nobody's going to be my friend. I actually found a picture. We were going through some pictures this, uh, at Christmas, and this is me in third grade. Would you pick me? Yeah, who, how can you not pick that? Would you have been my friend? Do you know the average number of friends that people have on Facebook? Anybody know this, this data? average number of friends people have on Facebook. You want to guess? More than 50, less than 1,000. 338 is the average number of Facebook friends. Of course, some have millions and some, some of us don't have hardly any. But uh, Do you know what the average number of real people friends is according to the latest data? The average number of real people friends that's, that people have. Two. Two. And apparently this number has been in steady decline for 25 years, the number of actual friends that we have. So a quarter of a century ago, the average number of friends people had was three. So we don't have very many people that we consider friends. And some of the way they do this research, they use different language like close friends or confidants, people that you really trust, people that maybe would be your BFF, your best friend. That's what they're talking about here. And did you know that having friends like that is actually really good for your health? They did a lot of research on this too, and not just emotional health, but it's actually good for you physically to have friends. Friends protect your health as much as if you quit smoking, and they actually, they actually give you better health. Having friends gives you better health than exercise. Did you know that? So you can either run a marathon or get some good friends is the way I'm thinking about that this year. Socially isolated people are more than twice as likely to die from heart disease, people who are isolated without friends. That's a pretty significant thing. Uh, one of the researchers who did this is from the University of Texas, and she said that strong relationships support mental health, <clears throat> and that ties to better immune function, reduced stress, and less cardiovascular disease. So having, health is, having good friends is actually really good for your health. And this research suggested that we, to have optimal health from friends, we need to have between three and five of what we would call close friends or companions, uh, BFFs, that kind of friend, um, confidants. So we need three to five, but we have two. And according to recent data, the number of people who say they have no close friends has actually tripled in the last few years. So more and more people are saying they don't have very close friends, and most of us only have a couple. And men are especially bad at friendship. But of course, we already knew that. Now, this all seems a little bit strange to me in an era when we have, like, all kinds of digital connectivity. So, I mean, you've got this ability to reach out, like, instantaneously with all these different kind of social medias. But this isn't the kind of friend that we need in order to have optimal health, according to the research. The kind of friend we need is actually a warm, flesh-and-blood body, a real person friend. We need someone who will come alongside of us and hug us and laugh with us and cry with us and 
spend time with us. That's the kind of friend that we need. And this is why I like this definition of friendship. True friendship is to know and be known, to serve and be served, and to love and be loved. True friendship happens when a real person knows us and we know them, serves us and we serve them, and loves us and we love them back. That's true friendship. And true friendship is when we like, take off this mask, and actually one of the other really nice definitions I like to friendship is this, a friendship is a person that you'll be around for no good reason. True friendship says, I'm going to take my mask off, and I'm going to let you see who I really am. And the risk that comes in that kind of friendship is this. If I let you know who I really am, are you really going to still like me? And true friendship is reciprocal. So I take my mask off and I say, this is who I really am, will you accept me? And then you take your mask off and say, this is who I really am, will you accept me? That's true friendship. So we love love each other with our quirks, we accept each other, we create safe spaces for each other, we serve each other. Sometimes we even do stuff for our friends that we don't want to do. We do stuff because we know it's good for them even though it's not best for us. True friends share this give-and-take relationship that satisfies both. There's something that each one gets out of it. True friends celebrate with one another. They show up at each other's important events in life. They show up when one another is in uh, tragedy or crisis. They show up when there's a victory or when they mark the milestones of your life. True friends say, I pick you. And then your friend says, I pick you back. That's true friendship. We love uh, we serve and are served, we know and are known, and we love and are loved. Now, who, who would like a friendship like that? Doesn't everybody really want that, to have some friends like that? I think that I do. And so as I was thinking about all these uh, ideas about friendship this week, I was really pondering on it quite a bit. And then these words of Jesus really hit me different this week, for some reason. Jesus says, I call you friend. That's what we just read in John 15. Jesus says, I don't call you servants. I don't call you anything else. What I'm going to call you is I'm going to call you friend. And by saying that, Jesus says, I love you. And I pick you. I'm choosing to love you. And I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to serve you even to the point of giving everything. I'll serve you by giving up my life for you, he says. And Jesus says, it's because um, I'm your friend. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that J.R. pointed out that the context for these words, this whole section in John, John 14, 15, 16, and 17 that we're focusing on this month, this whole section comes at the end of his life. So he has gathered the disciples together in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. These are kind of like the last words that he's saying to them. And that seems to me to change the way I listen to them. So I want to hear what he's got to say in this final moment. When he, the last thing he wants to, you to know is this. And he shares what is most important. Now listen to these words again in the context of Jesus says, you're my friend, and this is the most important stuff I want to tell you. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in that love. That word there is abide. The same picture that came earlier in this chapter, abide like a branch in a vine. Abide in that love. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will remain in my love. So he doesn't just say, hey, stay in this love, and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. No, here's how you do it. Keep my commandments. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I've told you this for a reason now. Here's the reason why Jesus wants this, us to know this, he says, because it gives Jesus joy for us to know this, so that my joy may be in you, and I'm telling you this so that your joy can be complete. My command is this, love each other just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. The more time I spent in these words this week, the more I felt like I wanted to just stay there for a while and remain in that sense of, you know what, it's a good thing to have a friend, isn't it? A true friend. And it's a good thing to be loved. And it's really a good thing when you hear him tell you, I'm your friend and I love you. And if it was the last thing they were going to say to you, you would listen to it differently, wouldn't you? The more I thought about these words, the more I thought, it sounds like a love letter. Now, I know we don't write letters like we used to. Many of you probably wrote letters before, you know, where you actually get out the paper. And I guess I remember Christmas is when my mom would give us envelopes and stamps and stationery for Christmas. Sometimes the letter, the envelopes would actually be addressed, so we knew what to do with them. <laughs> but we don't write letters anymore. But it's an interesting practice. I found this letter that was written on July 11, 1861. So there's some history buffs here. Doug can probably tell me what started in 1861. The Civil War, right? So this is from a soldier who is from Rhode Island. His name is Sullivan Balu. And he wrote his wife, Sarah, and this is the letter that he wrote. The indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. The memories of the blissful moments that I have spent with you come creeping over me. I feel most grateful to God and to you that I have enjoyed them for so long. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. And then seven days later, he was killed in the first, one of the first battles of the Civil War. So... The approach of death, uh, understanding that this might be someone's last words to you, kind of raises the stakes, doesn't it? Go, I'm going to really like, pay attention, and I'm going to linger over these words. We cling to them looking for some extra meaning, for some extra hope, for some extra sense of promise, for something to shore us up. How many times do you suppose Sarah read these words from Samuel after he was dead? I do not return, my dear Sarah. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. One of the last things Jesus said is, I love you. You are my friends. And we are invited to abide in that love, to linger over those words. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. So this is not an everyday kind of love. This is an unconditional kind of self-sacrificial kind of love, a love that says, I'm going to give it all for you. 
The Bible talks about this in lots of places. Another verse is 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for us. This is love. Jesus says, I pick you. I pick you, even if it costs my life. I'm picking you. Ever dwell there? Just how much God loves us? Really like abide on those, or dwell on those words. How many other friends do you have that love you that much? How many friends do you love that much? So I have to admit to you that until recently, I thought of this love as kind of abstract, kind of a, like I get the idea that it is possible for someone to love me so much that they would give their life for me. I get, I get the concept. I can think about that word and that, that, that idea and kind of frame it around there. But only recently uh, have I really started to get it. And bef- before I would catch like glimpses and kind of just momentary like understanding, like, oh my gosh, somebody loves me that much, they would give their, their life for me. But recently I've been experiencing it a lot more concretely and a lot more frequently and a lot more often. And the way that I've been experiencing that is in the love of other people. That when I feel really loved by someone else, I start to grasp just what it might be like to experience the love of God. And it's changing the way that I think about this. So now I'm thinking that the way to really know the love of Jesus is to know the love of other people that those two things are somehow tied together. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? Actually, he says it twice. My command is, love each other as I have loved you. So these things are tied together. God's love for us and my love for you. Loving each other helps us to know God. In fact, I was really thinking about this last night as I was getting ready for today. Can, can we say it this strongly? I don't know God's love fully unless I know somebody else loves me. I've been thinking about that. And I want to I do research on that. Uh, we had a leadership retreat yesterday, and I found out that my personality type is green. Do some of you know what this is, this green colored colors? Green people like to research stuff. They like to ask questions. They like to know. So I discovered that. I also discovered that green people do not like to be hugged by strangers. But, of course, we already knew that. But I was thinking about my reluctance for hugging also, and I think that comes naturally. And some of you have heard me talk about my mother's posture when I hug her. I have a name for her posture when I hug her. It's called the ironing board. (laughs) Have any of you ever hugged an ironing board? (laughs) I have. So let me tell you, by experience, hugging an ironing board is not very fun. It's cold and it's just not fun. Yeah, flat. (laughs) And so... I always thought I didn't like to be hugged and I didn't like to hug, but that's actually not true. So I'm going to dispel this myth today. I do like to hug. I like to hug my wife, Mary. I really do. And I like to hug my kids. And I actually like to hug anytime there's a really good reason to hug. Okay? And when I was thinking about that, I remembered a piano, all-city music contests. Some of you have had experience with all-city music contests. All my kids took piano lessons, 
And so as part of that, they all got to be part of the all-city music contest. And if you played piano pieces, at least in that time, when you played piano pieces for that contest, you had to memorize your piano music. So you didn't get to have your music with you. And uh, I can remember one year, it was sixth grade, um, and Travis had played this piano piece literally hundreds of times. Any of you who've had a kid who's done this, no, you, you hear this piano piece until you're sick to death of it. They play it so often. And then they get to this contest and they have to perform it in front of a judge and everybody can come into the room and watch them perform this. And he got up there to perform his piece and he sat down at the piano and he took a deep breath and he played two measures and then he had just brain lock and he could not remember the next note. And he sat there in front of everybody, suffering, trying to remember what was next. And I can remember all sitting in there watching this, and it's horrifying. And you hurt for them because they're in such pain. And you wish you could just snatch them out of there and run. And you're, dear God, help them remember that note. And finally, the judge mercifully said, you can start over. So we all like a big exhale and we all start breathing again and he starts playing and he starts the first two measures beautifully and then silence he cannot remember that next note and he sits there and I remember it as though he had this look on his face and the look is I wish I could disappear that's how I remembered it and I actually called him last night to ask him to tell me this story which is very vivid for him as a memory still and the word he used to describe that moment was I wanted to disappear That's how awful he felt. And I remember thinking in that moment, you know, when your kid, your family member, the one you love, is crashing and burning, I had one thought, and the thought was, I paid too much for those piano lessons. (laughs) I thought, no, that is not what I thought. What I thought in that moment was, that kid needs a hug. That's what I thought. In moments when there is like epic failure, it doesn't even have to be epic failure, it can just be little failures. When things don't go the way we want, when we start to wonder if we're good enough, and if anybody loves me, or if anybody will be my friend, in moments like that, What we need is not some abstract idea about the possibility that there might be a person out there somewhere who will love us unconditionally and give their life for us. What we need in those moments are a flesh and blood person who will come up and wrap their big arms around us and say, I love you, you're my friend. That's what we need. Some of you have taught me about this. I had a lot of fun sorting through some of these pictures and putting them out here for people to look at. I hope you'll get a chance to browse through some of them. It took me back to a lot of different places, and some of the places that it brings me back to is times when I watched you love each other. When you come alongside somebody when they're hurting, when there's been some kind of tragedy or some kind of pain or some kind of failure, big or small, and you made God's love real by coming there and you do it by visiting hospitals and funeral homes and coming to funerals and making meals and sending cards and giving rides and praying and sitting in the middle of stuff and by hugging 
That's actually how this church started. And I, I have this little video clip, but I think for the sake of time, I'm not going to show it. So you can skip that, but I'll give you this little teaser. I got a video clip of some of the charter members talking about how the church got started and what it meant to them. I'm going to show it next week. Um, so come back and you'll want to hear that. But uh, some, one of the main things they say in this little clip is this. We did life together. We lived together. We were friends. And friends loved each other. And in that love is how we get to experience the love of God. Jesus says, As I have loved you, so love one another. And when we do that, it brings joy. It makes Jesus happy. And it makes our joy complete. So in these last words, we kind of discover that we all have this call to practice the spiritual practice of friendship and love. Now, some of us are sometimes tempted to think that I get to be selective in that because I look around and I think, you know, there are certain maybe members of the family I don't love as much or maybe I don't want to love at all. But that's not really an option because that's not how families work, right? Because we all know we got that weird uncle or we got that cousin that nobody wants to invite to anything or you got that one family member that's an embarrassment to everybody. Do they ever stop being your family? No, they don't. Do you ever really get the choice of saying, I'm, I, don't, I can't love you, I don't love you, I don't have to love you? No, we don't really get that choice. That's not how families work. We choose friends, but we don't choose family and we're family. So I wanted to give you some really practical tips. If you haven't looked at your little sermon outline yet, you can look at that. There's some really practical tips there about what it might look like for us to practice friendship, the spiritual practice of friendship. And uh, it's in the second point toward the end there. There's several suggestions. Take small steps. You just like have to, uh, as JR suggested at the beginning, find somebody at coffee and say something different this way instead of say, oh my gosh, it's cold out today. Say, I want to get to know you a little bit more. Let's just get to know each other a little bit better. Take some small step to say, I'm going to build a bridge to someone I don't know. It does take time. So you have to figure out how you can invest just a little bit more time in this to say, uh, is there a way for us to do life together? And one of the ways we do that is by creating shared memories. And this doesn't have to be like big. Like you don't have to like go out and like cure cancer with somebody. You just have to go spend some time with somebody doing something together. And you start to create meaning and create life and create experiences that you go, you know what? I like you. I'll take my mask off, and then you take your mask off, which is one of those next steps. You say, I'll let you know who I really am, and you let me know who you really are, and then we'll just continue to create meaning together. And then another thing that might happen in the midst of that is there might be a crisis, or there might be some milestone in their life, or there might be some big victory in their life. Just show up when there's a crisis. Some of my best friends have surprised me at times when there was some deep hurt in my life, and they just all of a sudden appeared and they hung out with me. And then I knew they were my friend. We abide in God's love and that transforms us. And we really experience that love by loving each other. This is the practice of spiritual, uh, the spiritual practice of friendship. So I just wanted to finish the story about Travis. The third time apparently is the charm as he remembers it. He said it was at least twice. I, I, don't, I think it might have been three or four times, but there was about... Uh, a number of false starts on this little piano piece. 
And he'd get the same two measures done and he would get stuck every time. And then finally, the judge let him look at the music just to glance at it. The judge walked over and showed him the music and it all came back. And he sat down and he played the entire piece from memory beautifully. In the meantime, while he had been waiting for the judge to come over, he started crying. And in addition to family in the room, there was also a bunch of junior high friends. If there's anything that's more embarrassing for a little sixth grade man boy, it would be to have to cry in front of your friends to fail like that. And I'm sure that going through his mind was the question, does anybody love me? Am, am I worthy? Do I measure up? So he finished the piece, and after he finished playing the piece, he got up and walked away from the piano, and immediately all of his friends came around him. And I probably added insult to injury by also going up to him. <laughs> and I gave him a great big hug. And it wasn't an ironing board hug. It was a real hug. And I said, I'm proud of you, and I love you. And he cried again. And so did I. <laughs> and the reason we hugged is because that's what fathers do and that's what friends do when there's a good reason to hug. Dear God, we come before you today and I give you thanks and praise because you are a good God and you are our Father. God, I recognize that we're all sitting here together today as your family, and I thank you for that. Pray that your Holy Spirit would come and continue to speak to us. Help us to take these truths that we've heard today and experience them in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.